Hey, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to a... I don't think I've ever opened the podcast like that before. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, what is what am I, uh, late night uh, nightclub jazz singer or something? Ladies and gentlemen, sit back in your seats and enjoy the smooth sound stylings of Mikeadelic. Puff on your cigarettes and sip on your whiskey while the smooth sounds of cognitive liberty come through your headphones. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight I am your host. All right. I'm your host, <laughs> Mike Brancatelli. Welcome to Mike Adelic. We got a great episode for you today. Casey William Hardison is the guest. If you don't know who that is, just do what Casey, to- Casey told me to do. He said... Uh, just Google Casey LSD. But uh, no need to do that right now. Just tune into this conversation. Casey is an, uh, an entheogenic activist, a researcher, a psychedelic chemist. He's best known for his just tremendous spirit of freedom and liberty that he stands for, his good mood, his enormous energy. He uh, He's attended... Many entheogen-related conferences, wrote articles for MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, and he's contributed to Arrowhead, where uh, where I am getting this bio from, where I'm getting some of the pieces of this bio from. But Casey is a a great guy, uh, a true, you know, free spirit human being. Uh, you know, just just an absolute pleasure to talk to, and someone that I admire. Uh, you know, he is someone who's cut from the same cloth as a, as a founding father, you know, um, and he talks about this in, in, in the episode, you know, Casey was, was busted for making LSD in the UK and he acted as his own lawyer during, during the trial. So much so that the judge was, was like, are you sure you don't have any legal experience? And which he didn't, but this is a guy who was committed who 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 stands up for what is right? Who stands up for what he believes in? And I just respect the hell out of that. You know, I, I I talk about a lot on this show. You know, of course, everything that I talk about is is infused with the core idea of liberty, and specifically cognitive liberty, but liberty and freedom for all human beings, and I against violence, against any initiation of aggression. And that's what that's what I stand for. That's what I, I try and communicate, the message I try and communicate. And that's what Casey stood for when it was his time to stand for that and still does. Um, and, you know, I talk about ways to to change the world, to make a difference. And, you know, this is this is one of those guys that that does that, you know, it's it, by standing up for what you believe in, by standing on moral principles and for what is right, that has a ripple effect. People feel that, you know. Yeah, I definitely did. It hit me, and I and, and you just admire the shit out of someone like that because they're doing something that is true and that is right and that is undeniable. It, it, it's going with the the forces of nature that that propel us into the infinite, you know, majestic sea of consciousness and cosmos that we all inhibit. And it just, it's just, it just feels right, you know. It's, it's like. You know, when we when we get that chill sometimes when you hear somebody passionately talking about about uh, you know fr- freedom or liberty. You know, I used to get that uh, when I when I would sometimes when I would watch uh, Ron Paul give give his speeches and and stuff. So, you know, the spirit of the founding fathers, the the principle of freedom, 
fighting for cognitive liberty. Uh, that is, you know, a human right. It's our, our God-given birthright, you know, that, that can't be taken away from us. And when we make a choice to stand up for what is right, that is when things change. Because when every individual, you know, I, I, I talk about this a lot, and uh, but it, it's just so true. You know, it's, it's like we could change the world today, right now. Seriously. I, I mean, it, it sounds crazy. You think, oh, okay, yeah, change the world, right, sure, okay, yeah, it's not going to happen. Oh, okay. Well, as soon as you start thinking that way, you're right. You know, it's you're making a choice to think that way. And, and you know, this is this isn't some like new age woo woo stuff. It's just literally how the world works. You know, we all have choices. Um, you know, we we all have the power to say no. You know, we all have the power to say, fuck that. You know, I'm going to stand up for what I believe in. I'm going to speak out and I'm going to make myself known that this is what this is what is right, this is what is true, and this is what is meaningful, and this is what is good. And you can do that. Everybody can do that. You know, if we, if we want to see a change in the world, I think it, it starts with each individual. It starts with all of us realizing that we have great power, and that power is that we can make choices. We can choose to, you know, every choice we make has an impact. You know, it's like so many people are rushing around worrying about the past, you know, worrying about the future, you know, all these things. You can stop, you know, like the, the future and the past are created in the now, right now. With every choice that we make, we're creating a past and we're creating a future. We're creating a story. And in part, we're, we're creating our own story, but we're also co-creating the world story. You know, the larger story. We have a hand in co-creating this version of reality that we choose to participate in. This this television channel that we've tuned into, you know, we can change it. We just have to realize that we're all holding the remote in our hands and that we actually can can use our fingers to push the different buttons to, to change things. And if we all act individually, if we all st start believing that to be true the individual impact has a ripple effect which then takes on a massive change, a collective impact, you know. I've talked about this on the show before, but, you know, uh, people have said like, hey, look, if you, if, you t if you told me that, you know, the Soviet Union was going to collapse, I would say that you're crazy. But it did. You know, it did. You know, things, things can change. When enough people make, a, make an effort to stand up and say no, you know, to the status quo, say no to the people, to, to human beings that think that they're superior to us. So they have to use force and violence against us. Peaceful people, they have to impose their will upon us because they're afraid of, of their own mortality or they're afraid of whatever. You know, they're paranoid, they're scared, they're sick, they're diseased. We live, unfortunately, in a world that is controlled by sick people, uh, by people who are paranoid and fearful and have hate in their heart. And, you know, their, their way of feeling like they mean something and that this transitory life 
has a purpose is by imposing and dominating and controlling others and and forcing others to bend to their will. They, they get a joy in that. And that is pure evil. Pure evil. But, you know, instead of believing that there's this group of human beings that has authority over you, all you have to do is just believe that they don't. That nobody has authority over you. You know, there's... You... You have to ask yourself the question, who owns you? Who owns your life? Whose life are you living? Is it your life? And what can you do to change things? What power do you have? And of course, my answers are, I own myself. It's my life. And I have the power to make choices to change things. And you can control that. That's the one thing that you can actually do to make a change and change the world. Because the second you realize that you have control over your choices, you really do become unstoppable. You know, we, we are only living here and now, this moment. This is what exists. And every choice that we make becomes a past or a future. You know, it's, we're, we're ma- if we make the right choices now, we can create better pasts. We can create better futures. We can author a better story for ourselves. And we can author a better story collectively for the world, for the people that we, for the, our fellow human beings. But if every single person woke up and, and, and realized that they're co-creating this reality, that they have a choice, you know, that they can say no. They can say no to an insane and failed, tragic war on drugs that kidnaps peaceful people from their homes, locks them in cages like animals, destroys families, cities, and towns, treats addicts like criminals instead of treating them like people who need help. You know, One of the questions we never ask is why? Why is somebody an addict? You know? I mean, if somebody if somebody is addicted to food, if somebody's addicted to eating, we we just look at that as like, well, you know, they just they're fat or whatever. They really like eating food. But if somebody's addicted to heroin, we're like, this person's evil. They're bad. Let's throw them in a cage. I mean, what kind of primitive, barbaric, savage way of thinking is this? So this this you know, to me, you know, I look at people that think this way as evil, and they gotta go. You know, they're, 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 they're either evil or they're stupid and they're unable to participate in a rational, voluntary society of peaceful individuals working together to create a common good, to live in peace and to live in happiness. There's no reason to have hate and fear in the world. There's no reason to have people being subjugated and oppressed in the world. The only reason why these things happen is because the people... The, the systems that we create that give power to people that people shouldn't have. There is a problem of political authority in this, in this country. And one of my favorite books by Michael Humer, The Problem of Political Authority, an Examination of the Right to Coerce and the Duty to Obey, goes into just a fantastic breakdown of all this. The psychological belief systems that we all have to engage in to, to, to kind of make this all possible. The tactics that the state employs to, to manipulate people's minds, to indoctrinate uh, kids from when they're young, you know, kid, kidnapping them and forcing them to be in compulsory education programs, or as I like to call compulsory indoctrination prisons. With the, the, there's people that are 
that are in power, that are shaping the way that we think, that are shaping the way that our society and our culture runs. And they, and I discussed this in my last episode about mental health, but you know, we have a crisis in this country and possibly in the world. And that crisis is one of epic proportions. And it's not something to be addressed, you know, tomorrow or something to be addressed in the future. Well, you know, maybe if we can get the right policy or maybe if we can get the right people in there. No, no, no. This is all you. Every single person has the power to actually make a change. And this is the most, as far as I'm concerned, the most important thing that we can do is to realize that power and to actually put it into action. And at, at and you know what what happens is you know we have this this failed war on drugs, and now you have a guy like Sessions who wants to you know escalate the war on drugs. So what what are some options? What are some people you know they're like oh well we need to you know we need to get the, the we need to change the policy we need to make sure that we get different people in there. No no no, the the power corrupts and and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Like the Lord of the Rings, the Ring of Power will corrupt you. And when you when you allow for this seat of power to exist, someone will get in there and turn it bad. And and now we have it. You know, Obama didn't do anything. You know, you you like you know. There's this. It's just the that's the way this the system is created. That's the way the system is designed. And you know, if people realize that they have a choice that they don't have to participate in the game, that they can say no. That's what changes things. When all of a sudden, when you have lawmakers refusing to pass bills, when you have people refusing to do, to, to, to listen to orders given down to them, when you have police officers saying, uh, I'm not going to make arrests anymore for people who are smoking marijuana because I feel that that's immoral and I'm not going to do it. When you have one person that stands up and says no, the, 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 it inspires other people. Other people say, yeah, I, I can be like that too. I can stand up for what's right as well. And when you peacefully opt out, when you peacefully disobey, you know, Henry David Thoreau, civil disobedience. I mean, read that. You know, the guy is brilliant. Ralph Waldo Emerson uh, came to visit Henry David Thoreau in jail, and uh, it was because Henry David Thoreau refused to pay his taxes because he didn't want his tax money to go towards funding violence, war. And I agree. I am on the same page as that. You know, fuck these evil criminals who want to steal from us and fund their evil shit. Fuck them and resist them. And when, when Ralph Waldo Emerson comes in to visit Henry David Thoreau in prison, he says, Henry, you know, what are you doing behind bars here? And, uh, and Henry David Thoreau says, uh, well, what are you doing over there? <laughs> what are you doing on that side? And that's, you know, that's really my question to, to everybody. What are you doing over there? Are you just kind of complacently just going along and just acquiescing, you know, all right, well, I don't want to stir the pot too much, just kind of, you know, don't want to cause too much trouble. Things are okay, you know, not too terrible. 
I mean, hey, you know, I'm white, so, right? I'm not going to get locked up for a joint. <laughs> yeah, it's that's that's just uh it's fucked up, you know. I I if 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 one if any man is locked up for a joint, then I am locked up, you know. I if if any if any if any kind of aggression or violence is imposed on someone, I feel it. I feel it. If 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 the rights of an individual are violated, then my rights have been violated, and that that's the way that I feel, and that's and and that's what I believe to be true and to be right, and I, I vehemently oppose any kind of initiation of aggression on peaceful, nonviolent people, people that just want to do things that don't cause harm to anybody else. You know, they declared this war on us, the war on drugs. They, they declared it on us. They declare a war on people. And that war on people is a war on consciousness. It's a war on free-thinking minds. Every single person in this world is born into freedom as a free and independent, beautiful human being. And they want to put us in cages. Every single day, groups of violent human beings, armed to the teeth with weapons, are sent out to seek and destroy the lives of peaceful, nonviolent people. They want to kick down your door. They want to kidnap you. They want to lock you in a cage like a savage, like an animal, just for putting something into your body, into your own body that they don't approve of, that they don't like because they want to control you. They declared war on us. They declared war with their, they're drunk with their power, high off their inflated egos, thinking that they're superior, like they're not human beings, like they don't breathe the same air as us or bleed the same blood as us. They do. They are nothing more than sacks of meat and bone, just like the rest of us, who are all destined for the same ending. We are all eventually going to be food for worms in the dirt. Our lives are now. The time to start living is now. Resist them. They are violent thugs. Nothing more and nothing less. And all they can do is threaten us with violence. Threaten us with physical violence. And with all the science and all the stats out there that are proving this massive tragic failure of the war on drugs, the, these there's, you know, human beings... Are being, their lives are being destroyed, their families are being destroyed, children grow up without parents, you know, it's just, it's all for what, right? You know, it's, it's, it's so these big money interests can sell you the approved, you know, the drugs that they want you to take, you know, the, 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 so they can control the narrative, so they can get you feeding into their game. And they manufacture all this stuff, you know, they're the... The state, the big power elite, you know, the, the power structure, they are in the business of breaking windows and repairing windows. And we just go in this cycle where nothing gets done. No, there, nothing, there's no progress made. There's no, uh, there's no serving humanity. There's no value. There's no contribution. It's all manufacturing continuously, manufacturing fear and terror all so they can stay in power, so they can create the boogeyman and destroy the boogeyman. So everybody thinks that we need them for something. Well, we don't need them for anything. They are ruining things for all of us. They are creating a world of death and destruction and evil. You know, so, look, 
I, I'm going <laughs> to, I feel very passionately about this. And I did a, a, an episode about mental health, the last episode, check that one out. But this contributes to that, you know, and I say it in this episode, but uh, Nick Sand, uh, LSD chemist who produced the Orange Sunshine, that guy changed the world. He created, he created love and light and peace in the world. And Casey followed in his footsteps and did the same thing. Our guest Casey Hardison today did the same thing because they stood for the fundamental principles of what is right. And when you stand for what is right, nothing can stop you. No army and no government can stop an idea whose time has come. So we will not comply. We will not obey. We will resist. We will stand up for what is right. And, we'll sh- and we will opt out. And we will make them obsolete. That is the choice that I'm talking about. The choice to choose to not participate, to disobey, and to make them obsolete to invent a new game, a new system, something that serves us, something that we can all participate in without their aggressive behavior. You know, Jeff Sessions and, and his clan of cronies acting like savage monkeys throwing their shit at the wall because they don't understand how life works. They, they're fearful and afraid little monkeys that are scared. Their only, their only solution to everything, the only thing they have is the threat of violence. That's all they have. The only thing they have is the threat of violence. They send men with guns to kidnap you and put you in a cage. That's the only way that that's the only way they know how to do things. It's primitive, it's savage, it's barbaric, it's regressive and it needs to go. You know, Session said good people don't smoke marijuana. And to that I say good people don't kidnap people and lock them in cages for choosing to do so, for smoking a plant, for choosing to ingest something into your body that actually makes you more calm, makes you more in- empathetic, makes you more introspective, makes you feel more connected to your common man. If there's no victim, there's no crime, you know. So listen, I'm going to wrap this up, but cuz we're going to get into this you know, me and Casey get into this, and Casey says some amazing things in this conversation, and I'm just so I'm just so thrilled to to be uh, to be a part of something like this where I'm speaking with this legend, Casey William Hardison, absolute legend, and uh, and a true uh, you know I want to say patriot, but really I mean he's a true patriot for the human species, you know, just uh, just an absolute warm-hearted, kind uh, human being. And, uh, and just a pleasure to talk to and, and somebody who is a beacon of light shining uh, for the rest of us to be inspired um, to, to, to want to change, to fight for change, to stand up for what's right and to let the chips fall where they may. You know, it, it starts with you. It starts with me. We all have a choice. Choose love. Choose peace. Choose that over fear and violence. Don't get sucked into that, to that game choose to, to, to opt out, not to participate, to disobey, you know, choose jobs that are in alignment with your values, vote with your dollar, you know, make sure that, that what you're participating in serves people, serves humanity, use alternative currencies like Bitcoin, and just opt out of their evil game. And let's make it obsolete and replace it with something that serves all of us for the common good of humanity, for all of ourselves, to find peace of mind, to find love and to find joy in this world, without having to worry about people kicking down our doors and kidnapping us. All right. 
that's my two cents, my little rant at the beginning of the episode. I'm sure I'll devote maybe an entire episode to this, but that's it for now. That was kind of a long one, so I hope you guys really enjoy this episode. I loved speaking with Casey. I can't say uh, you know enough about him. I just, I just really respect the guy, and he's a brilliant, uh, brilliant guy. Like I said, warm, kind, and we have a great discussion. So without further ado, please, Casey William Hardison, ladies and gentlemen. Enjoy. Psychedelics are illegal, not because a loving government is concerned that you may jump out of a third-story window. Psychedelics are illegal because they dissolve opinion structures and culturally laid down models of behavior and information processing. They open to us the possibility that everything we know is wrong. We don't need new laws that control our consciousness and rigidly place it in a prison. Cognitive liberty. The fact that as adults, if we're not hurting anybody else, we should have the right to explore the contours of our own consciousness without any mediation or legislation on the part of somebody else. Reject authority. Authority is a lie. Is a Information is power. But we have to seize, seize the, opportunity. the opportunity. The opportunity. interested in being regulated by the state, manipulated by the state. The state should stand down. to have this guest on the show. Welcome, my friend, Casey Hardison. Welcome to Mikeadelic. As we commence at 420 Eastern Time here, it's 420 somewhere. We are honoring the, the gods and the eternal <laughs> spirits, the infinite beings of the globally connected, multidimensional, interplanetary universe of love and light and openness and oneness and freedom and liberty. So thank you, my friend, for joining me today. It's an honor to have you here. You're very, very, very welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Excellent. So, looking, yeah. So looking we forward were, to this. We, me, me too, man. I am very much looking forward to this. Uh, you know, you are, you're someone that has been on my mind for a while as, as, as in terms of getting on the show and, and having a conversation with because, like, we were chatting before, uh, before the show. I was telling you kind of my journey, you know, how I kind of got politically active and, and, you know, I was kind of in this libertarian camp and kind of anti-war and then all of a sudden all of a sudden I had a I had a beautiful dance with a lovely chemical compound and I was enlightened so to speak <laughs> you know I was I was every it was like uh, some curtain was ripped off in front of my face and I saw the world in a whole different way in a more loving way and, and uh, so I'm like what can I do you know, like, how can I what, what do I do with myself my life like where, where do I go what's my path 
know, I've been all in this Liberty stuff and now I got this psychedelic stuff and I'm like, well, how do I put them together? How does that work? And then, and then, you know, lo and behold, I stumble upon, uh, someone in yourself that, uh, I mean, you know, it just kind of blew me away when I, when I found out with your story and, and, and what you were all about and, and the, the kind of the words that you were saying, I saw a couple of clips online of some stuff and, uh, so yeah, so let's 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 inform the people of of, of 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 this. You know, I mean, I I know I know you you've probably talked about it a lot, and you've kind of given the the story, but once or twice. Once yeah, or twice. maybe one more time for the for the Mikeadelic crew over yeah. here. We can we can tell them kind of how y'all got started in this. Well, you know, I like to actually. Just, yeah, I got started in much the same way. You know, it's like the veils of my temple were rent in two. To use that uh, nice Christian metaphor, as Christ was dying on the cross. You know, for me, uh, I was experiencing a rebirth, a psychedelic rebirth. Uh, something opened up in my mind. I had uh, contacted some, you know, as I like to call it now, a universal language that showed me that connectivity, that love, that oneness of all of the universe. And moments later, the you know, I'm in this super psychedelic, you know, absorptive reverie, and I'm. Uh, buried myself in the pea gravel on the shores of uh, Lake Coeur d'Alene in northern Idaho and it's slightly snowing on my face and I hear these bells ring off across the lake and I'm like what the hell is that and it turns out when I actually explore that morning very early on I go over there and hike over there and walk over and figure out what it is it's the bells on top of the science building at the local community college and it just occurred to me in that moment as I was saying that and realizing that to myself, that it was time to go to school wow. and study what had just what had just happened to me. And I was like, I went from someone who had left high school, did the California high school proficiency examination, got out of that system. I'm like, this is just not for me. And to someone who was avidly interested in being in school to learn what transformations had transpired in that last eight to 12 hours of my life that just completely popped my cork, blew my head off, showed me uh, alternate and a new and a better reality. And a, just, a, you know, even, you know, getting out of the more, better, different into the world of a breakthrough reality. Wow. Yeah. I mean, so just for people. That's how I got started. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so it's, I mean, it's one of these things where, you know, I don't think every one of my listeners has, knows kind of what that experience is like, but you put it in such a great poetic way because it really is so hard to kind of like put into words that, that experience that you have, that kind of breakthrough experience. So, and it's funny, it's just funny how things work out. You heard the bells chime and you're like, it's time to go to school. Go to school. And cook some shit up, motherfucker. No, and it's time no, to go it to wasn't, school. It wasn't, yeah. you know, I, didn't, I wasn't really on the, I really wasn't like, it's time to cook this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hadn't, I didn't get there yet. It took a little while longer to get there. Yeah. Not a whole lot longer, but one of the things that's like one of the ways. Uh, so William Blake described his senses discovering the infinite in everything. And for me, I think that is the simplest, most direct way of cognizing something that can't be normally that's inevitable, not able to be put into words. Right. My senses discovered the infant and everything on the shores of Lake Coeur d'Alene, and then the bells rang, and then I went to school. Wow. And yeah. while I was at school that first semester, I, you know, I did biology, botany, anthropology, and an English course. That first semester, I started realizing that I really wanted to focus on plant hallucinogens and uh, uh, the 
the anthropology of it uh, and, the, and the chemistry. And so the second semester, I was like, I got to roll in, in, enroll in the chemistry sequence. And once I got into the chemistry sequence, I mean, I'm looking at this book and it's like it, the title of it is chemistry, the central science. And that's a pretty bold statement. It's like everything we do, all that we're doing in this very moment is mediated by a chemistry. Sitting there in that class, realizing these deep insights about my organism being immersed in an energetic chemical universe, I flipped this page at one point and there was a molecule of LSD drawn as a molecular structure on the page. And I'm like, holy shit, I'm being taught how to make this. Hmm. That's when the penny dropped. That's wow. like, oh, oh, I can do this. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I can do well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's so cool. Like for me being kind of an outsider to this, it, it really is just totally fascinating uh, that you can really dive into this area of expertise and figure out all the kind of inner workings of it to kind of actually manifest something into reality that actually is a benefit for mankind and, and for humankind and for, and, you know, for, for that, it's, it's like, I, you know, we, we, we should, we, we, like, I, of course, honor you and respect you for doing that because it's like, you know, that's, that's part of, uh, of kind of like the philosopher's stone or something, you know, to go there and to bring something back that can, that can really enhance the, the quality of life for, for people in this kind of real way, you know, that, that most people don't really think about. Most people just, you know, when they're buying something or they're getting something or, you know, chemicals don't really come into their thought process for the average person. I don't think, you know, at least not for me, even I have to take the time to kind of appreciate where this comes from. So, much respect to you for for choosing to do that to walk that path because you know there's it's it's like there's all these unsung heroes that that make fantastic compounds and nobody ever really thinks of them so cheers and kudos to to walking that yeah. uh, that path thank you thank you it's been it's been a pleasure and uh, an amazing alchemical journey to put it uh, to put it in the 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 you know in, into the Jungian archetype this is a uh, a uh, transmutation of my own self, a transmogrif a transmogrification of uh, my own being through the making of these molecules and the process of learning it, developing the discipline, uh, learning the bench practice, putting my love, putting my intention into this such that as I offer it to others who willingly seek to ingest such things, they have an opportunity to experience something super clean, super pure, made with love, made with intention, made with discipline, made with the pursuit of the alchemical gold. Yeah, that's amazing. So it, when when you were going through this process in college and you were learning these things and turning those pages in that chemistry book, you know, were were you uh, was there anybody that you kind of like were looking to at for inspiration or for or, or something like that? I know. I know that uh, I, I, I saw an episode of Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia that you were on where we were talking about Daryl Lemaire and, and how he kind of took you under his wing. But was that – that was after, I assume. But was there anybody in college that, that, was, that, was, that was – That was much after. It's like yeah. I had this experience. Of, uh, so my first semester of school, uh, you know, I did Grateful Dead tour all the time. And right. uh, Jerry was not dead yet. Um, oh, he would awesome. eventually die. And uh, so I was still following Jerry around. I followed Jerry around the summer of 94. And at the end of the summer of 94, I wound up back out in New Mexico. And I was hanging out at this hot spring 
uh, called Hamas Hot Springs, San, San Antonio, or the California. I don't know exactly which one it is. I know I know how to get there. It's five, about five miles deep into the wilderness off the highway. If you can't, if the gate's not open, you have to walk all the way in. But uh, and I have, and we we had I had my school bus there, a double decker school bus at that time. Uh, um, I had my school bus down there, and this guy drives up. And I see him drive up and he parks right next to my bus and I'm parked off to this area, this neighborhood. I'm like, what the hell is this dude parking next to my bus, man? It's my neighborhood. You know, I'm like, you know, I'm in the middle of the wilderness. He doesn't need to park that close to my thing. I don't know who he is. Like he must, does he know me? Gets up on the top of the, uh, up, up to the hot spring. You have to hike up the side of this cliff to get to it. And he gets up there and he peeks over the top of it. And it's this guy from tour. And I look at him and I'm like, God damn, it's Dave. And he becomes goddamn Dave from here on out. From huh. there on out, it's goddamn Dave. And I start telling him what I've done since I last seen him, is I've gone to school, and I've you know decided that I'm going to study this area. And he's got in his car a copy of this amazing, amazing book, Pharmacotheon and Theogenic Drugs: Their Plant Sources and History by Jonathan Ott, just published. And he's got a copy of it. And he's got also a hand of these mezcal beans that he wants to try to figure out how to do. Right. So we eat them. So we eat them and we have this experience. And somewhere in that experience, we get really super sick. And uh, goddamn Dave, as he's huh. called now, uh, is basically like, dude, if you want this book, you can have it. I know it's going to be a curse to me, blah, 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 or something like it. And it's an encyclopedic reference text of uh, entheogenic drugs, their plant sources, history, uses, how to use them. And it's by Jonathan Ott. Yeah. And he becomes my first like true mentor on this path. Like the person I'm like, damn, that guy's awesome. He's really got the discipline. He really uh, is passionate about this. And uh, he puts it in there in such beautiful poetic ways, you know, lays it down in words and verbiage like a linguistic samurai. And, you know, just super pleasurable to read for me. And uh so he became my first mentor and I realized he was taught by Richard Evan Schultes and uh, I find this other book in the library, uh, uh, Ethnobotany, Evolution of a Discipline. And I finally realized that what I really am studying is ethnobotany, which later gets translated into entheobotany for the entheogen kind of concept, the realizing the divine within, the botany that, and the chemistry that has one realized the divine within. But Ethnobotany, Evolution of a Discipline was the next book I encountered and it was really – uh, a, a broad overview of uh, medicinal plants, medicinal plant uses, sacred plants, sacred plant uses, you know, pills, potions, powders, and plants, and how we use them through time uh, as, you know, as human beings to, uh, you know, to, for everything from sorcery to poisons to, you know, uh, ameliorative[s] to medicines to whatever you want to call them we love plants we love to use them and the psychedelic plants in particular are of great interest to me and yeah. the very first book and i think if you're really really committed to this path out there listeners that get a copy of pharmacotheon and theogenic drugs their plant sources and history there's a little bit of uh there's the introduction that's got a probably a little bit of dating now that we're you know 20 years further 23 years further down the war on drugs but the in information in there is an amazing leaping off point for understanding the complexity and the depth and breadth of this world. And that was my first mentor. Right. And, and eventually I would make my way. I'd find out about this thing. I don't know. I ordered a book and it had a, uh, um, it had a, a, a little advertisement in it. You know, uh, I ordered a not so normal, not so usual book. And it had this advertisement in it for entheobotany seminars. Uh, 
down in Palenque, Mexico. And uh, a good friend of mine, uh, K-Dog Loving Hawk, saw this flyer and knew that I tried to go and couldn't go one year and then managed to convince his parents that he needed they needed to pay for us to go the next year. So we managed to get down there. And that conferences, those conferences, those conferences were like a very intimate, um, you know, like 60 to, you know, 75 people uh, gathering in the tropical jungles of, or the nearly tropical jungles of the Chiapas. There we go. Okay. So in Chiapas, Mexico, Chiapas. Uh, right, right at the base of the, of the pyramids are these temples right. and just an amazing experience, you know, a, a gathering of pharmacophiles and entheogen aficionados from around the world, multilingual, uh, multi molecule, multi-plant. We, uh, basically experimented, got high, took a lot of things, shared a lot, loved a lot and explored the territory a lot. And, and that was, that is where I really started, uh, uh, bonding with Sasha Shulgin, who would become my next mentor. Wow. You know, as I had learned more chemistry by then. Yeah. Wow. What uh, a mentor to have. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so when I at that conference noticed that a, a lot of people took two uh, CT seven, uh, um, a mescaline analog, two uh, five dimethoxy four propyl thiophenethylamine, a lot of people took this molecule and uh, including myself and I experienced an amazing, amazing transformation under the influence of that molecule. Oh wow! And I got to. Got to run around the Mayan temples high on that. <laughs> oh and, my God, what a place to be doing yeah. that! Wow. One person said to me, "Crystalline clarity uncaged." Wow. And uh, and I I noticed this and I said, "Wow, we could actually write. Um, uh, um, we could write. I could write a, uh, a a qualitative survey of people's experiences on this molecule and 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 actually create something of use." to uh, science and to the psychedelic community. Uh -huh. And that became a paper that I was able to publish in the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies Bulletin, Volume 10, Number 2, uh, the Terrence Death Issue, Terrence McKenna Death Issue, oh, wow. uh, which was widely read. As, and uh, one of Sasha's mentors, or not mentors, uh, uh, the scientist from his research group, um, Daryl Lemaire, saw his wife's copy and read it. And, you know, got in contact with Sasha and said, what's up with this dude? I noticed right. you're in personal communication with him. And Sasha was, you know, uh, bullying with him saying that he really liked me or enough that Daryl contacted me and said, hey, I want to give you a lab. Yeah. And that was a really special moment to be taken under the wings inside of that community and and uh, embraced as someone that they could trust to continue to make these molecules for uh, for underground therapy and for the community in general. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. It's like, I mean, it's like being recruited by like the X-Men or something, you know, it's like, Hey, they, yeah, it's we got to get this like guy. Shoulder. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's so cool, man. Um, so yeah. So you were there, you spent time doing that. And then, um, th so this was probably what, like late nineties or something or. No, that was actually, uh, that was spring 2000. Oh, okay. That, All right. Early 2000. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, yeah, then, the, and then, so then later on, but late nineties, a lot of, a lot of the stuff was through the late nineties, but you know, spring 2000 is when it, when it properly matured. Yeah. Uh, the full, you know, actually if there was going to be a moment that it properly matured, it was the full moment, full moon of February of 2000. That was the moment that the penny dropped. It was like, bang. 
the full moon of February of 2000? Yep, I was at uh, Yachilan, a temple site uh, on the Rio Usumacinta uh, with a whole group of us that we had left the conference and we had all gathered together and gotten a bunch of buses and drove down to this place called Escudo Jaguar and then took these boats up, you know, up the river to this temple site that, you know, it's, that's the only way you could get to it. And uh, we had a experience there that was um, ineffable. Yeah, wow. Wow, that's amazing. So it's I find it so fascinating that the way that you came into all this stuff. I mean, you're looking through these chemistry books and and then you're you're attending these conferences and it's like, you know, look at this, you know, they they can't make information illegal. I mean, as much as they want to try, you know, it's like people are writing books and they're passing their knowledge and wisdom down and they're spreading it with other people who are interested and passionate and and it and it's and it's kind of presenting itself to the right people along the, their paths like you. And then, you know, we look at these conferences that you were attending back then. And then look at where we are now. Look at how much this has grown, you know, with with recently with the Psychedelic Science Conference in Oakland being kind of, I think that was the largest psychedelic conference to to have happen and kind of just this this kind of reemergence and this renaissance age that we're in coming from where it's, it was in the, in the dark times to now where we're emerging to. Yeah, it's very cool. It's amazing to see, like, I mean, this conference, like the, the Planke and Theobotany seminars, I mean, like there was, I think, 60 in in the spring of 2001 60 people and that is not a lot of people when you consider that just two weeks ago in oakland at the psychedelic science 2017 conference 17 years later there was over 3,000 people plus a lot of people who didn't pay a lot of people who just showed up to hang out at the marketplace and check out things and it's the word is spread and we're in the media more and uh the idea of mdma as a prescription medicine is becoming more and more accepted um, it's certainly in my mind going to happen. And then once it's a yeah, prescription medicine, it's obviously prescribable off label and more of it will be produced in, uh, in, uh, with good man- good manufacturing practices, which is essential mm-hmm. that clean MDMA is available to the world. I think not, you know, not in the terms of Soma as in like, uh, Huxley's brave new world. But in terms of just creating more connectivity and more yeah. empathy, that's one of the great things. It was one of the absolute fabulous, fabulous things about this conference that we just had uh, is that the connectivity uh, is just uh, immense at those experiences. People are uh, people are you know connecting and sharing data and information and uh, bringing themselves together and strengthening. Uh, themselves. Amanda Fielding of the Beckley Foundation, who was one of the chief sponsors of the conference, said this quote I found in her newsletter that I received this morning. These conferences are important because there is a strength in connectivity, a strength in people coming together. And now at each gathering, the number of interested people is getting bigger and bigger. It's rather like what happens in the brain on LSD. There's a vast mm-hmm. explosion of connectivity. Oh, wow. I like that. <laughs> wow, Amanda Fielding. Yeah, what an amazing person. She's going to be a guest on this show soon. And and the, the, I hope the, so. yeah, the people, uh, uh, David Nutt out there in in the UK. So there's so many <laughs> there's so many great people involved in this new in this new uh, age of psychedelic renaissance. It's really it's really fascinating and uh, and inspiring. Yeah. There's an interesting – you call it the psychedelic renaissance, which is absolutely fine to be calling it. It's a great name. Yeah. Uh, mind mani- a mind manifesting re- uh, renaissance or a spirit manifesting psyche, uh, manifesting uh, 
uh, renaissance, but there's also another word, another phrase for it that I really appreciate, and it's from John Ott, Jonathan Ott again. It's called the it's an entheogenic reformation, mm. much more powerful than the Protestant Reformation yeah. before it. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, told, oh, this is the this is the kind of reformation we want to be a part of for sure. Yeah, yeah. not like those Absolutely. repressed uh, sociopaths. Um, <laughs> so. Yeah, that, that's 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 awesome. Yeah, I attended uh, the Horizons conference in New York. That was actually the first. I think that might have been the first conference that I attended. But it was it was really phenomenal. It was amazing. You know, there's so many cool people there that I got to meet and talk to. And um, yeah, this 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 kind of line of work or or all of these things that are being done, the research that's being presented, the the medicinal uses, and the you know, it seems like every day there's another article being published, you know, and then there was, I think, a, a little blurb in the on the cover of Rolling Stone maybe a month ago, but the psychedelic miracle. Um, Eric Davis wrote a fantastic piece the other day. I think that you posted and I shared it was, it was really, really well written and, and phenomenal yeah, piece. Fabulous. Yeah. And there's just so, so there's so much it's spreading, it's spreading, it's spreading. Just like that Amanda Fielding quote, you said that that web of connectivity is happening and it's really something to be a part of and, and to see. We are a great brain. Yeah. There is a concept. It's called the newosphere that humans are the actual or you know or the organisms are the brain of the planet and as we can speak and uh, manipulate with tools and operate with symbols we have the power to be a to to we are the consciousness of gaia of this biosphere of mother earth yeah we are her living brain we are each neurons and as we connect with each other increase empathy with each other increase bonding with each other we'll have a more peaceful more loving more beautiful place to live Right on, man. Uh, that is so true. And and so with all this happening and with all these amazing, wonderful things happening, you know, the the one thing that I really want to see see more of and the reason why you're kind of on the show today and, and really what what my show is all about is cognitive liberty and 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 cognitive freedom the, the the freedom to explore our consciousness in whichever way we choose and 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 you make so many good good arguments about this and bef- i guess before we jump right into the kind of cognitive liberty case i want to just give a little bit of a backstory of kind of uh where you were so when you when you decided to go to the uk and then set up shop there and then obviously what happened was that you you got busted and then you kind of made that case in court which you know i got to say is is just well, well we'll let you explain it first and then and then i'll come <laughs> back to that but yeah so so why don't you tell people i guess like how how that happened you went over to the uk and then and then you know what what happened then oh i i mean i don't know Daryl gave me the lab um and I went back to Idaho and I, I had a school bus, that same school bus that was parked in the hot springs. I had that school bus and I uh, tore out the rear end of it and turned it into a lab quite quickly and started making a molecule. Uh, the first molecule I ever made was 2CD, which is the 4-methyl phenethylamine, uh, 2,5-dimethoxy-4-methylphenethylamine. And I started giving it away and people were really liking it. And then I went up to the, another entheobotany seminars conference up in uh, Whistler, British Columbia, and I gave – 10 grams of it away up there, just like dosed people. You know, hmm. it was absolutely fabulous experience. And the connectivity kept going, like the connectivity, the connectivity. Hmm. And then uh, um, I met an individual there who was a brilliant theoretical chemist. We actually met, uh, he approached as I was talking to Sasha, and he's like, I've never seen Sasha so animated. 
when he's talking to someone and, and I just really want to, you know, find out who you are and see more about you. And so him and I hung out and we had a really great time. His name was Clay Adam Prepsky. And I say was because he eventually wound up killing himself, unfortunately. Um, he uh, uh, he didn't kill himself with like, you know, a gun or anything. Suicide. He just accidental overdose. Mm-hmm. Careful. Yeah. And he uh, um, uh, him and I, you know, started hanging out and talking a lot, theoretical chemistry. And he. Um, he said, Hey dude, he called me up one day. He's like, Hey, you got a venue. I'm like, what do you mean? You got a venue? He's like, do you have a venue? I'm like a venue. What's a venue? I guess a venue is a place to do things. Yeah, I got a venue. And, uh, he's like, I'll be up there. I'm flying in today. So he flies in and he's got a bottle of, uh, the, the, um, the sh- what we were calling what I what we would wind up calling shampoo, which was the ketone, the methylene doxy phenyl two propanone for making MDMA, and we made a batch of MDMA, and uh, uh, the first little run of it was sixty six point six grams, which I thought was quite funny, and uh, we we uh, sold that and got out, and this is right after nine eleven. We got out of the country and got over to another entheobotany seminars conference uh, on shamanism and tantra in Nepal. And that was small, another like 50 people maybe. I don't know how many. It wasn't very many. We could all fit in this one little room. Um, and it was shamanism and tantra, and we brought MDMA, so we were definitely well-liked. And uh, um, we had a great time, really a fast, fascinating experience. We'd eventually wind up uh, discovering psilocybin cubensia in Nepal, uh, growing an elephant shit, you know, just like Ganesh standing on one foot, blue, sweaty, pallid skin with a parasol over his head. But I would be flying back from that, and a woman that I met at uh, a woman that I met at in Palenque in a Mexican in, in the jungle bar right near the conference that we were having called, and the jungle bar was uh, Rockshitas, and she was uh, she was one of the servers there, and she would actually wind up being uh, partners with Jonathan Ott for a while, uh, but she was putting on this conference on ibogaine. Uh, in England and I decided to fly into England to this Ibogaine conference and I was there and supporting her and we were, uh, you know, experiencing great joy with each other. And at one point she looks at me and she's like, you know, we could use a lab over here and some connectivity was made and some connections, uh, occurred and I, um, managed to figure out how I was going to do that and brought a lab to, you know, came to England and basically set up a lab, uh, uh, ostensibly to produce Ibogaine, but you know, in reality, what I really did with it was make a lot of two CB. Right. And so I was making shit tons of two CB and made about seven kilos of it. And, uh, uh, and then as I was doing that, uh, someone showed up with the, uh, precursor, the agrotamine tartrate for manufacturing LSD. And I was given an opportunity to make some, uh, as a testing, here's a little tester for you. Can you do this? And I was like, well, you know, the, 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 you know, the alkaloid, the mother corn alkaloids appeared. It's time to test myself. And I was able to do this. And then I was given a larger amount and I was able to as well. And things were progressing quite fine. And then uh, a friend of mine, uh, I needed some money behind a credit card in the United States. And a friend of mine was like, uh, I called him up. I was like, you put five grand in there. And he's like, yeah, sure. And so I, 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 I he wanted to some MDMA out of the deal. So I sent him some MDMA and he put the five grand in, but he kept the receipt in his pocket and eventually busted with that receipt in his pocket, you know, of his pants, not the one he was wearing, but the ones around his laundry machine because they searched them. So throw, mm. throw away your receipts, cash receipt people. Yeah. And uh, they, they busted me. And as soon as they busted me, I was like, wow, uh, 
well, not only do I get a rest because I've been on a really nice, you know, endless summer for several years. Um, <laughs> what, a zen, I, what a zen approach to that. What a, what a like, well, I guess I get a rest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I get a rest. I don't know exactly what they know at this point in time, but I knew I was going to represent myself on the basis of human rights. When I was in Palenque, that first time I saw uh, the Alchemind Society flyer, uh, what would become the International uh, Association for or Society of Cognitive Liberty. Um, and that principle, the meme, just the idea of cognitive liberty, that's thinking and the freedom to do so. So that, that, that hit you at Palenque when you were at Palenque, that That, hit hit you there. Yeah. Yeah. And I became a proselytizer for that meme long before I got, you know, busted. I was a proselytizer for that meme. I was making flyers. I was distributing them at festivals. I was talking to people about them. I was like trying to bring membership and you know, readership support to the Alchemine Society. And even my first chemical company, I even named Alchemind uh, Research Foundation. Uh, they would then Center for Cognitive Liberty and Ethics. They would change themselves to the Center for Cognitive Liberty and Ethics. And they were publishing this journal, the International Journal of Cognitive Liberties or the Journal of Cognitive Liberties. And uh, um, those were just – they're amazing reads. I mean I really suggest that any my, you know, the listeners out there uh, read On Cognitive Liberties Part 1, 2, and 3 and maybe even 4. Uh, from Richard Glenn Boyer mm-hmm. and uh, the, all the journals are still online. You yeah. can still have them and still read them free. Um, and I really suggest you do so. Cognitiveliberty.org, right? org. Yeah. Anyway, so I had this meme in my mind and I knew that the reality of what I was up to was altering my mental functioning as I see fit. Um, right. So, so, and, so and what when was, I, you know, so Casey, what, co- what was like when that, when that meme like struck you, like, what was it that was so appealing to like, what, what really hit you about that? That said, yeah, that's, this is what I want to stand well, for. Well, it, it cut through all the bullshit of sacredness yeah. or medicines or it just cut through all, it just, it's like, it just, it just sliced that shit off at the knees. It's like, you don't need to justify your drug use that you want to alter your fu- mental functioning. Right. Hell yeah. It's sufficient. You know, it's like <laughs> my can... mental functioning. My my brain my brain hangs out in six hundred fascial pockets. It's not limited to my cranium. Yeah, it's in every you know it touches every cell of my body. It's paying attention. It's listening, and it may even permeate you know the electromagnetic atmosphere outside of my cranium. It certainly is affected by that. And so, if I want to alter my mental functioning, the functioning of my organism, or how any part of my body functions with an you know exogenous chemical i should have the right to do that provided i'm not transgressing the other laws that we already have for offenses against the person right there's no other reason to interfere with my liberty than i'm fucking with someone else's property or their person which is also their property or their liberties rights which is also their property yeah hell yeah man i want to mess with my property it's my property. It's my brain. It's my cranium. If the interior spaces of a woman's body are protected, Griswold v. Connecticut, United States Supreme Court, if the interior spaces of a woman's reproductive anatomy are protected spaces and then they can use chemicals to alter those, I don't see why I can't use chemicals to alter my mental functioning. I don't see why that isn't just an absolute, just blisteringly clear corollary. So that, yeah. One's so- not making that just hit you that struck you and it you know obviously you're a super intelligent guy so you just like that just connected with you right away you got that right yeah, away yeah it was like this is the key to unlock the war on drugs yeah i've been supporting this organization called november.org uh and they're working they pro- they produce this thing called the razor wire which is a drug war newsletter that they distribute to prisoners in the united states of america we have a lot of drug war prisoners mm-hmm. um and 
I've been looking at the drug war issue from the human rights perspective, but not really seeing the key to unlock it. Sure, it's a privacy thing. Sure, it's a, uh, you know, it should be sacred. You should have the right to religious things. Sure, it's all that. But one thing that just cut through all of it was the right to alter my mental functioning. Because if I can't alter my mental functioning, then I may not be able to generate a thought that might give rise to a petition for a redress of grievances under the First Amendment. So it's like it's buried in our our constitutional heritage. And there's case law that says that our constitutional heritage rebels against giving governments the power to control man's mind. And yet this is exactly what we're doing. We're taking these molecules that are substantially similar in Shosh's terms to the biochemistry within our cranium or in, you know, our, our endogenous chemistry. We're taking these molecules that directly affect those and they're very, very similar and sometimes identical with the, you know, the endogenous chemistry. And we're saying that those areas of your brain are off limits to experimentation because we say so, because we're your dad or we're your, you know, we're, you know, we're, we feel paternal about your mental states. And yeah. I just, it just didn't fit. It just didn't fit with me. That just didn't seem right that, that they could say you can't have these types of experiences. It is, you know, for me, it was the most precious experience I'd ever had in my life. Yeah, me too. You know, aside, aside from being born and maybe looking at my mother's and my father's eyes when I was a little, little baby and my sister and stuff like that and the family, those really deep experiences that are beyond words as a child, what else could be more precious than that of waking up to the, my senses discovering the infinite in everything, that I'm all one with everything else and that we are, you know, that we can come together and create love and unity and, and you know, what sounds like hippie pipe dreams, but man can be reality. Right. Yeah. It's not like this. And I think one of the, one of the most important things that you can do, I guess maybe one of the most intelligently intellectually honest things you could do is have the, have the experience for yourself in in a responsible way and decide, you know, if this is something that, that, you know, decide for yourself, have direct experience and, and, and that in itself to prevent people from, from doing that is, is tragic, you know, because it's like, how are we supposed to kind of inform ourselves and uh, of these, of these things? And, and then, um, you know, I love, I love the, these, these words that Terrence McKenna said, uh, where he says like, if the words life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness don't include the right to experiment with our own consciousness, then, then the declaration of independence isn't worth the hemp it was written on. I just like, I love the, the way yeah. that he, he put that. And it's like, yeah, you know, everything that you just said is like not debatable, you know, in, in, in my opinion, at least. And the fact that we have to make these arguments and that we have to have this debate is, is somewhat silly to me uh, because it just seems so right and so true and so morally correct. I absolutely, 100% absolutely. Benjamin Rush, the physician to uh, George Washington, said something to the effect, if we don't put medical freedom in to the constitution, then our bodies will be as sick as our minds are now. Mm. And it's quite interesting that he didn't look as far as he could have with, which was the right, the, you know, the right to alter our mental functioning as we see fit. Like in that time, they weren't thinking that there would ever be prohibitions on psychoactive molecules. You know, maybe there had been a prohibition at one point on tea and maybe there had been a prohibition at one point on tobacco for a moment, but there was no idea that there was going to be these massive major prohibitions uh, against certain psychoactive molecules simply because they gave one the access to uh, uh, unconscious content of one's mind that the authorities find terrifying. 
Yeah, it really is something that they fear the most, you know, and and look, uh, on this show, I speak my mind and I don't hold back. And, you know, I know you're the guy, a guy that does the same thing. And it's like, look, if we're going to talk openly and honestly about this, it's totally, a, totally a game of control, totally a game of, you know, domination and, and subjugation and, and, and fear and terror. Because really, I mean, how, you know... <laughs> The scariest thing is 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 a person who trusts themselves and who who trusts their yeah. own who trusts their own <laughs> inner power and their you know like <laughs> that's really the most the scariest most terrifying thing for somebody that wants to rule and control you. It's like no nah, no nah, I'm good I got my own mind and it seems like you you uh, you share that quality as well and and you made it a yeah. case like I just I just want to just I just applaud you so much for. For when you when you got in trouble and and you got in trouble you got to, they they came and they and they they scolded you so to speak but they they busted you or whatever and and you when know, they kidnapped when they kidnapped me yeah let's be honest about it when a group yeah, of when, when a group of me, human beings my, when yeah. they kidnapped me stole my shit yeah and imprisoned me right yeah yeah when a bunch they of people asked, got they together, then asked yeah. me to justify myself right right. And I tried to spin it around on them to say, you need to justify yourselves in right. terms of this principle of cognitive liberty, which permeates our constitutional heritage and this idea of equal rights and equal treatment with respect to alcohol and tobacco producers. And so what was going on for me is like, I, you know, I got arrested and I get this duty solicitor and uh, he's a he's a really awesome man. And yet he doesn't have the power to argue for me before the crown of England. Uh, and I managed to retain him as a solicitor and keep him without having to pay anything. Uh, and we have this barrister that comes really highly recommended. His name's Rudy Fortson, but he was looking for he's a he's a he's a Queen's counsel now, which is a QC. At that time, he wasn't yet a QC, but he was uh, allegedly the best litigator in drug policy and drug law. Uh, and I was uh, I had him and I retained him and I was talking with him and I asked him to represent me on the basis of human rights, uh, the Human Rights Act of the United Kingdom, as well as the European Convention on Human Rights and, uh, the, and on these principles. And he said, I can't do that. I'd be professionally embarrassed. And I thought, wow, that's just amazing. The guy has to speak with a forked tongue. He has to speak for the crown hmm. as well as allegedly attempting to defend me. Oh God! And that just didn't seem right. That was just like this doesn't work. This is, violates every principle I could feel about liberty and 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 right to a fair trial and stuff like that. And I said, well, you're fired. You got to go. I can't work with you. Uh, and it wasn't a disrespect thing, but it was just really odd that it's like he would say I would I'd be professionally embarrassed to actually raise these arguments. Well, I wasn't embarrassed, and so I had to do it myself. I chose to do it myself. Yeah, and and, and I just took the time. Yeah, and, and I was just gonna, I just wanted to say real quickly that I I really uh, re like that and admire that quality about you. I wish more people had that kind of bravery to say, you know, no, let's cut through the bullshit. Let's do this the right way, you know, rather than if it pleases the crown, you know, <laughs> so to speak. So yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I, well, it's it's for me, it was like, um, you know, I mean, you talk about bravery. It's like you know, I'm screwed. You know, they got me, you know, red handed in the cookie jar, man. I've got crumbs in my beard even. And, uh, you know, there was no way I was getting out of that. The monkey had showed up with the cup. It was time to pay the piper. There's no way I was going to get out of, out of it by any conventional means. You know, they don't have the doctrine of the fruit of the poison tree in England, which is like if they fucked up the investigation, which they did. Right. They did some un unlawful things in that. But they've got this section in the, you know, the English Constitution, which says, well, if they fucked up and only so bad, then we're going to keep all the evidence here in the United States. We have this very clear principle if officers violate the law, 
in, in, in attempting to enforce the law, then all the evidence that they find uh, is inadmissible. Um, and that's a really simple, clear principle, bright line rule in our uh, jurisprudence of the U.S. Constitution. And it's really effective in having people not be prosecuted where officers uh, don't conduct themselves properly. In England, we didn't have that. So I screwed. They were going to try me no matter what. And I just wanted to speak my mind. Uh, and I wanted to be in an attempt to articulate. I wanted to be the, you know, I wanted to. You know, not necessarily just to be the first, but I wanted to, to articulate these principles in a court and have it heard and hopefully have them ring out around the world. You know that, uh, you know, the, the, those who speak up against an unjust law are showing highest respect for the law rather than just bowing down and adhering to it. Yes. According to Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah. And yeah. I, I and I did not want to bow down and say, oh, yeah, you got me. They were like, you know, they had offered me, they, you know, I wound up getting a 20 year, I got 86 years for sentencing, uh, but they collapsed to 20 years. They offered me like half of that. I'd have been out in five rather than the 9.27 if I just start squealing on my friends. And I'm like, you are, you guys have just no morals. There's, right. just, there's no ethics in that. You know, it's supposed to be the, it's supposed to be law. Law is the highest ideal that like we have come up with. In a long time as a human society, the idea that the law is king, not the king be law. And here I am. These people, they've got no morals, no ethics. They want me to roll over on my friends, destroy families, uh, just like they just want to. They, they think they're doing the right thing. Maybe. I bet most of those officers don't. And yet they're enforcing the law that they know is unjust. And they're just – they've just got – I mean there's no backbone, no morals, right. no respect for human life, no respect for human dignity, and certainly no respect for freedom of thought, no respect for liberty in general. And I was very, I was very impassioned to speak out and like make the best case I could possibly put forward. Plus I was inspired by the fact that I was in Lewis, California – or not Lewis, California. I was in Lewis – I was in Lewis, England, mm -hmm. East Sussex, and I was uh, – uh, I was uh, – in the same, you know, I was I was in the town where uh, Thomas Paine had wrote Common Sense, oh, one of those amazing. spearheading documents of the American Revolution. Hell yeah! And and I was in that town, you know, I was in the prison cell where he had been like indicted, and uh, you know, I was in this old, really old, old prison, and I was like, you know, this is historical. And so I grabbed all the information I could and tried to speak as eloquently as possible and like put the historical reverence into the idea that this is a position that in time, even if it doesn't happen here with my trial, my experience, I will come, I'll be, uh, there will be a day where I'll, I will see, be seen by the mass of humanity is to be right in my position. Yeah, man. And you just pulled on that channel, that power of pain. And yeah, he, he was, I mean, he's one of my favorites because you read him and, and it's like, you know, he's, he's giving these impassioned pleas of, uh, uh, you know, it's just, he was one of the, the, the first sparks of the revolution. And that's so uh, amazing that, that, that you were able to kind of channel that energy and, and use that and, and really continue this path of fighting for freedom. That's so important fighting for, for free. Th if you don't have free thought, you don't have free anything. So the fact that you stood for that is incredible. And, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was seven days that, and it's the record for the longest, uh, policy advocacy, advocacy, ad, advocacy speech. My, 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 my speech is now being impended, but, uh, about cognitive liberty and human rights given in, in the court of law. Um, and, and you, you 
kind of you basically your strategy was I'm going to use this against them. I'm going to take their their system. I'm going to work within the their 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 game, and I'm going to try and and uh, and give it to them the way that I see it. Right. Absolutely. Well, it was a situation where where um, the actual argument of the the human rights argument uh, it seemed to be like ten days. You say seven. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it was ten ten days, ten weekdays. I mean, it was you know, it was, I wasn't sleeping much. Yeah. Um, I, I was really, you know, I, I was actually wearing a co- every day. I wore the exact same thing, that cognitive liberty shirt. You can actually see me in handcuffs, getting out of the the back of the paddy wagon in that shirt. I would not. I refused to wear any other shirt for weeks at trial. And uh, um, it's the lockheads one with the unlock your mind symbol. Yeah. Uh, the uh, um. So I'm there and I'm, I just keep giving this speech and it's like I don't think anyone else has done it ever, you know, certainly not certainly not to that length. And they listened. They had to listen. That was the requirement of law, at least on their end. The procedural rules said they had to listen. And so I hear, aired each of my arguments out and they, you know, uh, Judge Niblett, Anthony Niblett, Niblett promptly ruled against me and then impaneled a jury. Not after some, you know, they did some chicanery in there that was like uh, there was a. Of, they nearly had to let me go, and I had a transportation arranged. I'd have got out of the country; it'd have been completely all, all over. But they ruled against that, you know, the the time limit rule thing, and they kept me. And they were later shown to be wrong by judicial review. But I then had the jury, and in front of the jury, I was forbidden to bring this stuff up. The judge kept forbidding me to, and I just kept bringing it up. Uh-huh. I was like, you know, it's like you, you know, I don't care what you're saying. You yeah. can t- keep telling me I can't say this, but I'm going to keep saying it. And he'd be like, he'd stop the trial, and I'm like. You know, he, he every time he'd stop, he's like, Mr. Hardison, I told you not to speak about that. And I'd be like, Your Honor, why could you please tell the jury why you'd like me not to speak about cognitive liberty? Could you please tell me why they shouldn't know that I should have a right to think for myself or whatever else I said at that time? And I just kept going and kept going. And he just, you know, a number of times he stopped me in the middle of my sentence. You know, one time he stopped me in the middle of my sentence. He's like, Mr. Hardison, are you sure you're not legally trained? You know, and I'm like, no, I'm not legally trained. He's like, damn, dude. <laughs> so he, he, he already, had a little just, bit of respect for you making your case. Yeah. Yeah, he really did. He's what like, was he's the like, reasoning like, that he, what was the bullshit reasoning? I'm sure it was a bullshit reasoning that he gave you. The bullshit to- reasoning was they, they gave this thing about the uh, Article 9 in the European Convention on Human Rights has these provisions in it, which is basically said, you know, for health, protection of health and welfare and morals and all this stuff. And they took, they, they cited this case that obliquely referred to the UN conventions, which are certainly not binding on the European Convention on Human Rights or any court that adjudicates such a case. Uh, and they use that as an oblique way of saying that it's already been ruled on. We can't do this. Wow. Uh, and because uh, somebody tried it on religious freedom and they they cited that judge cited the U.N. conventions uh, against narcotic trafficking and blah, 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 um, to uh, to as a reason to uh, not allow me my freedom. They said, well, you know, the, the courts think, you know, the, the, the legislature thinks otherwise. But the, that same legislature had later enacted the 1998 Human Rights Act and uh, adopted the European Convention on Human Rights, which should have been uh, the supreme law at that moment in time. But the judge just misinterpreted it. And I tried on appeal a number of times and eventually was actually banned from mentioning the words alcohol and tobacco in a courtroom. You were? Yeah. Well, here's an interesting thing. It's like, yeah. So when David Nutt – speaking about David Nutt, right? Yeah, when David yeah. Nutt was the head of the Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs mm-hmm. – I started a freedom of information campaign trying to back him into a corner, uh, suggesting that he should uh, recommend to this home secretary the scheduling of alcohol and tobacco under the Misuse of Drugs Act. And he refused to do so and then gave this really bullshit reason 
Uh, it's funny, right? When I saw him at the conference, we got to talk about it. It was really great, really great experience. <laughs> and uh, he uh, he would eventually get fired. He was pushing the same, you know, he, we were on the same team, really. Yeah. He really wanted to see a rational basis in drug policy. Right. And they were working on it. Amanda Fielding and Beckley Foundation were working on that. And I knew Amanda before I'd actually got arrested. And uh, and so I knew that, you know, they were he was heading that same direction. I was just trying to encourage him to go there. And when he didn't go there, I judicial, judicial, used the judiciary to judicially judicially review him or his decision as the uh, chairman of the advisory council on the misuse of drugs. And as a result of my banging on about the equal treatment between alcohol and tobacco producers, suppliers, possessors, things like that, uh, I banged on about that. Like, why don't I have equal treatment on the common law, the very simple common law pre principle that like traced cases should be treated alike and unlike cases should be treated differently. There's no rational basis for excluding alcohol and tobacco from the Misuse of Drugs Act and then including uh, all these other psychoactives, some of which are less harmful than alcohol or tobacco, right. just doesn't make rational sense. And as a result of making that argument uh, in several venues, you know, I sued the Home Secretary as well for not scheduling alcohol and tobacco. Uh, I'm the only person to ever, I believe, to this date, to ever uh, judicially review the Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs. Uh, and as a result of that, I got an order prohibiting me from mentioning the words alcohol or tobacco. Nothing to do with the case. Nothing actually to do with the case argument I presented, which is cogent, rational, clear, logical. I've had it tested by numbers of lawyers. And nothing to do with the case. They just said, well, you're forbidden to mention the words alcohol and tobacco in a courtroom in England again without written permission. Right. And then it just comes down to this thing where it doesn't really make any logical sense, but because they're all the men with guns, they make all the rules and ultimately they force you into accepting them, which is, you know, I mean, that's not really the way that it's supposed to go. You're supposed to be, you know, presenting rational and logical arguments and then having discourse and negotiating and compromising to come to terms with what, what can be said and done and, and how things should be de dealt with. But unfortunately, we don't live in a calm and rational world. <laughs> so, you know, that's unfortunate. But um, yeah, so I I'm going to I'm actually going to I'm actually going to look for this particular paragraph. Yeah, it's a very simple principle. It comes from uh, it comes from a U.S. Supreme Court uh, case, Railroad Express Agency versus New York, and it's used in uh, a terrorism case in the United Kingdom about indefinite detention. Uh, and that's how I found it. The uh, It's used in an indefinite detention terrorism case. And I was reading this case because I read a lot of Supreme Court jurisprudence whilst I was in whilst I was in prison. Yeah. Uh, government must exercise their powers so as not to discriminate between their inhabitants, except upon some reasonable differentiation fairly related to the object of regulation. This equality is not merely abstract justice. There is no more effective practical guarantee against arbitrary and unreasonable government than to require that the principles of law which officials would impose upon a minority be imposed generally. Conversely, nothing opens the door to arbitrary action so effectively as to allow those officials to pick and choose only a few to whom they will apply legislation and thus to escape the political retribution that might be visited upon them if larger numbers were affected. Hmm. Courts can take no better measure to assure that laws will be just than to require that laws be equal in operation. So the idea that alcohol and tobacco users aren't included in the Misuse of Drugs Act or the Controlled Substances Act here in America – that allows the officials to escape the political retribution that would be visited upon them were they to prohibit such drugs. Right. Now yeah. they impose they impose they use the same exact principles 
with no reasonable differentiation, there is no reasonable basis for differentiating between alcohol use and, say, ecstasy use. Mm -hmm. No reasonable basis whatsoever. Both are harmful. Alcohol killers far more people than ecstasy ever does. Yeah. And uh, it's not related to the object of regulation. The reason that they excuse it from the you know alcohol and tobacco from from the Controlled Substances Act or the Misuse of Drugs Act in the United Kingdom, there's no rational basis for that. And so this is the very simple doctrine that encapsulates both the problem and the remedy uh, in regards to the drug war and these issues. We really need to take and regulate all of the molecules that we most love. And we need to regulate not the molecules, but the property activities with them, um, the possession, import, production, supply, you know, uh, storage, stuff like that. We need to make regulations on those for like LSD and 2CB and DMT and MDMA and, uh, and, and on and on such that they can be uh, lawfully manufactured, so that they can be uh, made in, with good manufacturing practices, so that they can be supplied uh, safely, that there are safe places of consumption and supply, so they can be labeled correctly, just like they do with alcohol, just like they do with tobacco, just like they're, they're doing, starting to do around the states with cannabis. Yeah, and, yeah. And that's absolutely essential. So my arguments uh, have been two-pronged. Like, you know, you're, they're failing to protect us by attempting to protect us from certain molecules and not others. Hmm. And the other thing is that as they're failing to do that, they're abridging my cognitive liberty, my right to alter my mental functioning as I see fit. A great example in, in that is like ayahuasca, whilst it's partially lawful, uh, as long as you're within certain sanctioned ceremonies in the United States of America, uh, DMT, the potent hallucinogen that's found within, is scheduled substance, uh, controlled substance, um, People experience deep therapeutic benefit from uh, ayahuasca. Yeah, and, I have. Yeah, and yeah, I have as well. And I could speak of it as like I should have the right to alter my bodily chemistry to have this therapeutic effect, which is one very valid argument. Mm -hmm. Or I could speak speak of it as in like I should have the right to commune with this sacred plant for my religious benefit which is another valid argument. Or you can take the next argument along, which is I should have the right to alter my mental functioning for whatever reason, right? including experiencing pleasure, including experiencing you know, just loopy states of mind, or including experiencing these religious sacred moments of transformation, or including experiencing therapeutic benefit. I should have the right to alter my chemistry. Yeah. I am a, so I am a sovereign or organism. I'm not owned by the state. The state does not dictate who I am or what I do, provided I'm not harming other people's property or the state's property or abridging other people's rights or liberties. It's a very simple principle. All right. And I think it should be now, too. Everybody listening, that's where we applaud at that one because yes, yes, yes. I mean, I <laughs> that is that is that is exactly correct. And and you know, it is just so, so key in, in, in this. And I think it's once you f have that understanding, 
that everything changes, but it's, you know, it's this kind of fear-based mentality that we have of this puritanical sort of ideology of control and the ego has to dominate everything. And we know we, we can't let people have fun. No, God forbid if, if somebody's, you know, it's like the, the, this old crusty, like guy in a suit just sitting there like, Oh, somebody's having fun, uh, you know, ingesting a molecule right now. Like, ah, it really grinds. You know, it's just this, 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 this allowance that we need to have. There's a right that we all have to pleasure, like you just, you know, beautifully said. And, you know, one of the things that I'm interested in, I want to get your take on is currently what we have going on right now. And I think we, we need more of this, this, this impassioned plea for cognitive liberty, uh, in, in the discussion in, in what we see happening right now in this, um, in this time that we're in, because I don't necessarily want anybody else to, to kind of control the narrative, especially the state. I don't want, you know, the state to control the narrative and, and, and make, and tell us, you know, like basically, okay, well, this is okay because there's a medical benefit to it and that's it. You know, there's no other argument. So, so with that kind of stuff that's happening right now, do you see that, um, obviously everything that's going on is helping advance the cause, but do you, do you see hope for this kind of argument to kind of reemerge and be a stronger argument? Uh, of cognitive liberty that, that we're talking about right now. Yeah, I, I I do see hope for a reemergence of it. There was a conversation I was having yesterday with Sylvia Tyson of uh, Irwood fame and other fame. She uh, is a fantastic uh, linguistic samurai herself, and she uh, was listening to this podcast by uh, that Eric Davis did with me. And there was this conversation we were having in it, and I want to develop further, uh, which is the there was this great research uh, upsurge of consciousness exploration. And the conversations about exploring our consciousness and cognitive liberty that was happening through the 90s and into the late 90s, to early 2000s. And then it was like the festival, uh, uh, the festival culture kind of started pushing that away. Mm -hmm. Like there was like a, or, or not necessarily pushing that, burying it in the tsunami of the capitalistic experience that was going on, the hedonic imperative. Uh, and I'm, I'm trying to explore that. I'm probably going to write an article about it soon, uh, exploring that, uh, trying to figure out. Uh, what happened to the uh, the psychonaut? Yeah, man. Like where, yeah. where, yeah, where is the real psychonaut these days? Right, right, right. Yes, and and I agree because I took I took part in these you know these music festivals and stuff that were going on in like the like 2010, 11, 12. Like that's when I started to kind of get into it, and and it, it, you know I I really despise this kind of. Uh, you know, co-opting or hijacking of what, what what is a raw, real, and true message uh, that that the they try and package up and kind of sell back to people. You know, especially my generation, the the millennials, whatever you want to call it. It's like you know the the people that it's like so commercialized and it's like okay you have these sanctioned spaces for like you know having fun and stuff like that and yeah people are going to experiment but yeah where's the kind of the deep philosophical conversation the revolutionary kind of founding father-esque conversation of you know our our, our rights to the freedom of our minds for for you know fighting for mind rights is is, is how i like to to kind of put it like you know we we fought mm -hmm. for all these rights for all of our our time you know fighting for civil rights and for women's rights and for gay and lesbian rights and lgbtq rights you know and it's like fight for mind rights like that's the one right that unites us all so yeah i worry a little bit in terms of 
like people of my generation and younger who get into these festival scenes and they're, you know, they're all in their Snapchat and their Instagram. And it's just like maybe getting lost in kind of like exploring what the meaning and purpose is. You know, I watched, um, man, Nick Sand passed away recently and, you know, that guy was just a, a legend and, and I watched something in uh, an interview uh, that he was that he gave, and he just beautifully the way that he described the beauty and the and the mystery of this of the early '60s days of exploring with LSD was so wonderful. When it wasn't when it wasn't unlawful, right? Exactly, and and I didn't have and, to worry about being arrested, right? And and Nick Sand makes this point where he's like, you know, that it changed the set and setting which is so important, totally changed the whole environment because mm -hmm. now you're taking these substances that, you know, amplify your, you know, your, 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 your emotions and things like that. And, and, it's, and, and, and then you have to worry about someone kicking in your door and making you a criminal. They made all these peaceful people criminals. So I, I, I have a little precisely, concern about my precisely. generation, but I want, you know, what, what can we do to push this forward? What can people who are in their 20s now, what can we do to kind of push this message that you so proudly and eloquently uh, stood for and, and argued and still stand for to this day? As someone who does actually still stand for it to this day, like very, very much so, uh, I think we could uh, we could spread the meme, obviously. The more we reproduce the meme, the more brains that carry this concept in their mind – the more liberty we will eventually have. Um, there's a very interesting thing that you started with. Uh, you started talking about being co-opted. That's precisely, I mean, like Hawking Bay in the very first issue of the Journal of Cognitive Liberties uh, wrote this article called Against Legalization or published this article in the, uh, Against Legalization. And he talks about uh, the co-opting of dissent or the co-opting of the right. psychedelic world. Yeah. Once processed as commodity, all rebellion is reduced to the image of rebellion, first as a spectacle and last as a simulation. The more powerful the dissent is art or discourse, the more powerless it becomes as commodity. In a world of global capital where all media function collectively as the perfect mirror of capital, including this media, we can recognize a global image or universal imaginaire, universally mediated, lacking any outsider margin. All image has undergone enclosure, and as a result, it seems that all art is rendered powerless in the sphere of the social. In fact, we can no longer even assume the existence of any sphere of the social. All human relations can be and are expressed as commodity relations, including with the courts including with like forfeiture and seizure and uh, including with our social security numbers and including with the, you know, the governments uh, wanting to tax and regulate us, except they don't want to tax and regulate this thing called psychedelics. Why don't they want to tax and regulate psychedelics? How does it seem to escape this sphere? And why does it seem to escape this sphere? And then you, and then yet you see these microdosing studies, which are like, Oh, it increases productivity at work, which yeah. is increasing the, the capital and then the tax take. And if the governments maybe see enough of that, maybe they'll go, oh, well, maybe this isn't so bad after all, especially in the microdosing format, we can get more productivity out of our workers, huh. less down days due to hangovers and alcohol. You know, and so all these things, they swirl around and they're in this competition, this uh, mimetic competition and memes are units of cultural transmission. And the more we can reproduce cognitive liberty as an idea with fidelity, the more faithfully we, we can reproduce it and store it in more minds, the more minds that we can impregnate virally with this concept of cognitive liberty, the right to think for ourselves, provided we harm no others. The more we can do that, the more successful we will be in having cognitive liberty. 
Well, you are doing it right now, my friend. I mean, just through the the beautiful advances that we've made in the fields of technology that allow us to have this uh, technologically mediated, uh, you know, conversation, uh, uh, mind melding, mind jam session here, and 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 dispersing this wisdom through the the airwaves, through the microphones, into the ear holes of everyone listening. It is spreading and. Yeah, I mean, wow, I just want to add to to kind of what you just said because that was so powerful. You know, it 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 is this thing that we have to to be careful of, you know, be getting trapped into this kind of controlled rebellion or this limited kind of sanctioned playpen of 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 resistance and 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 to really know who we are, to experience who we are ourselves and then emerge and stand in in the in the realm of realness and truth and fight for what is right and 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 yeah, and and that is just uh, that is super important to me, and I am really so so fucking just thrilled and honored and excited that you came on this show to discuss these important ideas with me, and and just laid down these these just uh, amazing uh, truth bombs. Yeah, I got, I got a couple more right now. All right. The, uh, um, so you talk about these playpens, right? You know, yeah. There's this amazing playpen. It's called Burning Man. Yes. And it's very interesting. Like uh, the global elite. Uh, seem to want to attend so they you know they work really hard all year long and they work make their art and all this stuff and all that political capital that they could be spending is being spent on making art and preparing for the burn and so they're not participating in the politics they're staying out of the politics many many of these people i'm not saying everybody i'm not there's no one size fits fits all because i'm a burner and i go and i burn and i burn brightly and um, you know, it's like we have these, you know, these festivals and we go to these, we have festival culture and everybody works during the week and then parties for the weekend. And then it often forgets to take the principles, the insights learned about compassion and kindness and love and respect and unity and that we're all one and that we're all, you know, we're, there's nothing that really divides us except that which we make up in our mind and that we forget to take these principles into our general daily life. Life. There's a lot of people who go to the burn who actually learn to burn wherever they go. You know, the burn never stops. People, you know, you get people talking about, you know, oh, when I'm back in default world. No, it's all one world. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, it's all one world. And as we learn to not only speak about cognitive liberty, but to act with cognitive liberty and to act shamelessly with cognitive liberty and to act shamelessly in compassion for one another and to act shamelessly in unifying and speaking for unity then, you know, it's like the more we do that, the better world we're going to have, the more the, the breakthrough world we're going to have. We'll wake up one day to discover that we are the eyes of the world. Yeah, yeah, totally. And, and you know, it really does start with, it starts with the individual making a choice to do so, you know, and, and, and to kind of just just the the way the way that you did that, you know, what you did when you got busted, you know, first of all, I just must say, you know, you're, you you get involved with this stuff and you're doing what is a, a major service to humanity and you know and and you're providing things that are doing these wonderful things for people so you're 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 doing these things and then when you get caught you decide to stand on your principles and when you do that when when you did that it it it, it it let a domino effect, you know, uh, a ripple, you know, it's like dropping like a mini like psychedelic bomb across the, the globe and it, it affects people, you know, and people like me are inspired uh, to continue down that path. And, and so thank you for, for that. 
That's very, that's very fabulous. All I did, all I did was when I heard those bells ring and I realized it was the school as I just translated a very simple insight into action. And I just kept following that idea, translate the insights into action, translate the insights into action. When I wrote that paper from the Ethelplanke and Theobotany seminars, when I wrote that paper on 2CT7, I simply was translating an insight I had. I was high as I could possibly be, laying on the deck at the pool, nearly <laughs> immobile, yeah. with this you know soaring eagle, technicolor rainbow thing visual over my body. Must have been a cloud or something. I don't even know what it was. And then I just, suddenly the penny dropped. It was like again, it was just like, holy shit. There are uh, there's nearly like there's like there's like 50 of us right here right now on this molecule. I could write a paper. I just popped up off that deck, grabbed my computer, and started jotting notes down as fast as I possibly could, which was really cool because under the influence of 2CD7, I wrote that article. Yeah. And even under the influence of 2CD7, that high, I could still write all that shit down and operate it enough to actually get in. A, I even hitchhiked into town and got it printed up, and then brought the survey back to the people. As they're coming down, they're like getting the chance to fill out the survey. Not one of those persons knew that they were going to participate in some sort of science or any sort of survey. But so many participated in responding to me, and I really am grateful for that. That translated into my first lab. That translated – it just kept on going. The ripples, the domino effect keeps going. The connectivity keeps going. Yeah. That, yeah. We, are, that we are creating a connectome of – uh, psychedelic minds is incredible and it's a pleasure to be part of it. I love it. The newest we absolutely Tilhard de Chardin is the, uh, one of the primary, primary writers on that. And then I participated actually at the, at the, uh, again, at Palenque, I met this guy named, uh, Lorenzo Haggerty or Larry oh, Haggerty yeah. who yeah, ran yeah, yeah. the Palenque, Palenque Norte. I yeah. met him there. And, yeah, exactly. And I, uh, um, uh, actually got to talk to about talk to him the other day. It was really a pleasure. And, uh, he, uh, he asked me to be uh, an editor for his, uh, book spirit of the internet speculations on the evolution of global consciousness, which is available at the matrix masters website. Uh, you can find probably just by clicking through the psychedelic salon, through the links and stuff, uh, spirit of the en internet speculations on the evolution of global consciousness. Cause that's what we're doing. We're evolving a global awareness. We're yeah. often, uh, you know, acting locally and thinking globally. And the more we can do that, the better this world's going to get. Yeah. And what the, it's just the perfect time for that to be happening right now. Of course, there's dark forces out there and they're wanting to do, you know, nefarious things, but we have such a power on our side and inside of us and, and the ability and the, and the means to kind of execute on these things nowadays. And it really is just a great time to be alive. So, um, just want to get to a couple of questions before we wrap. One is, um, I always ask this question on the, on the show. Uh, well, first, actually, we'll start with this one. Uh, some some listeners have have written in. They said we want to we want to hear about some like uh, maybe a bad trip story. But I don't know if you want to share a bad trip story or maybe just an interesting or memorable one. If you have one, um, I don't. Uh, I, I actually don't have a bad trip story. Okay, cool. <laughs> nice. I, I've never, you know, I've ex I've experienced you know long dark ayahuasca sessions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That were like really difficult to get through. Uh, you know, uh, heroic death style, full ego dissolution, but you know, that wasn't a bad trip in the slightest. Right. Yeah, yeah. It was actually, I came out of it absolutely blissful and, uh, I love it. You know, so there's no bad trip stories, uh, good trip stories. 
And so many of them, I don't even know where to start. <laughs> we'll be but, here for the next 16 so, hours, folks. Yeah. I think, the, I mean, I think the real prime message is that, you know, the wisdom is within us. And I have been, it's been revealed so many times on uh, the, the influence of psychedelics that the, that there is a deep innate wisdom within me that I can actually trust mm-hmm. and that the universe is trustable. And that has come so many times. Uh, I think that's probably the one thing I want to leave listeners with is that it's okay to trust this universe. Really is, yeah. This this place is uh, oh, it's it's uh, it can serve us. It really can serve us, and we can serve it, uh, because we're it. You know, we're not different. Right. We're not separate from Earth. We are made of it. You know, this is our place. This is where we're at. We belong here. If you're searching for a place to belong, you belong here. If you're wondering if there's anything wrong with you, there isn't. You're functioning perfectly normal. You might actually be functioning on a bit of faulty software, but I'm pretty sure there's nothing wrong with you. You know, it's totally okay to be who you are. You're not alone. Yeah. Amen to that, brother. I mean, that is, that is the truth right there, folks. If you're ever going to, if you ever want to tune in to hear the truth, you just heard it. So yeah, I mean, that's, that's great. So, so I guess, you know, taking that, that you said that it seems like you're pretty optimistic for, for things. And and one of the things that I always kind of end the show with and ask people is like, you know, we, we all kind of get into this, you know, we're not into this to, to, you know, make the big bucks or whatever. It's, you know, we, we feel passionate about putting good and love and positivity into the world. And, and, and there's an aspect of kind of, you know, changing the world for the better. So what would that look like to you? What, what's like Casey Hardison's, you know, world look like in the future or now, so to speak, maybe? Well, I mean, I think the world, uh, a future world would be, you know, it's like, actually, if I want to start from like the one message that I got really early on as a youth, even before I took psychedelics, uh, there's a simple line in the gunner's dream, uh, on the final cut album by Pink Floyd, uh, and no one kills the children anymore. Um, that was what it really looked like. We'd stop killing children. We'd stop dropping bombs on people. Yeah. We'd realize that we're all one population, that there's plenty of resources to go around and that we can actually feed everybody. And we let go of all these delusory uh, belief systems that have us separate, that have us believe that there's an afterlife that we could actually make a better, you know, those, you know, we don't, we don't have to worry about this life. The next life is the one that's going to be okay and everything's going to be fine. So let's just fucking blow this world up and get there. You know, I want out of that Abrahamic thinking that puts uh, you know, that puts original sin into mankind's mind, that puts this idea that there's something wrong with us, that puts any of that stuff into any children's mind, because that's, you're killing children, you know, it's like you're killing their creativity, you're killing their, 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 their potential possibilities by virally impregnating them with useless memes that separate them and have them afraid of other people on this planet. And, you know, just because they got different skin or because they got a different religion or because whatever difference they want to focus on rather than the similarities. Uh, you know, I would see a more unified world where we get to, uh, you know, share and joy and love and abundance and nobody's scrabbling for resources and nobody's hungry. We're all fed. It's totally possible. There's more than enough resources to go around. And that would have to look like a, a social tempering of capitalism. Uh, we can't constantly assume that there's going to be infinite resources so that we could have infinite growth on this planet. We have to focus on what's renewable and, and sustainable and work with that and work within those boundaries. And that is going to have us promote the sociality of interdependence, interdependence. We have one universe. We're all in it. We're all dependent on it. We can't live without it. And we have one earth. 
We can't live without it. We have one biosphere and we only have so much water and we have, we take care of all these things. And that's the world I want to live in. Yeah. I want to lo- live in a world where the animals can roam free and not have to be worried by, you know, uh, getting hit too many, you know, hit by too many cars. And, you know, we have, we have ways of, uh, you know, taking care of the environment and taking care of ourselves. That would be very beneficial for mankind over long periods of time. And I'm sure we'll get there. It's just going to take us a long time. You know, it might be 500 years, might be a thousand before we get to a place where we're mostly peaceful. Yeah, man. And you said something, I forget where it was, but it stuck out in my mind. Something about like, uh, being, uh, the, 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 where you grew up and, and like the bison or, or the buffalo that were being the mistreated. And then that would in turn be the way that we would mistreat the Native American population and then yeah. that sort of thing. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, like, it's like, it's all. They- one, if we there, treat with something there, with there care, was a, yeah, there was a calculated program of exterminating the bison because it was the primary food source of the Plains Indians of America when they wanted to run the train tracks across there, and the pilgrims wanted to, and the settlers wanted to come out and take land and make farms and homesteads out here. They killed off the bison so that they could suppress the Native American population uh, who actually lived here. It was their territory, their land. Uh, many of them, you know, still live here, but they're decimated by alcoholism and the, the being separated the, they've been torn apart from the, the, the worldview or the, uh, the way of life that they once knew. And, and, and the, the you know, the bison are a keystone species on the prairie. They, um, they bring soil, they till the soil with their hooves, they shit, they eat the, pro- they eat the plant plants that are produced with sunlight and the nitrogen that's trapped out of the air and in the soil and they till that and they till that over and they make topsoil and when we eradicated the bison we had the great depression and the dust bowl yeah it's all connected it's all connected it's all connected yeah it's all one it's all you know there's a very 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 fine line between alone and all one and that exists in the minds of man and nowhere else yeah, in the mental prison of man that can be sometimes if we have the wrong people at the at the helm. And I think the old kind of power structure is changing and the new tide is turning and we're seeing a new birth emerging. And, you know, I feel positive about it and I know you do. And so, hey, man, this was, this was awesome. This was incredible. I wish I could keep talking to you for another three hours or four or five or ten or a million. And, uh, you know, we'll definitely we'll definitely connect again, uh, I hope to. And just tell people where they can find you and any kind of work you're doing right now or just uh, where uh, they can I mean, see you. Yeah. They can find I have a I have a blog page at irawid.org in the uh, in the blog section. Um, I also have the Irawid Vault at uh, again irawid.org. Um, I work with a number of different organizations. I write. Uh, I've I've uh, experienced a year of a lot of silence where I've just been very quiet about my writing, but I'm reemerging um, and I'm writing more. Um, I have a Facebook page. Um, you can find me there. Uh, you can find me under my full name, Casey William Hardison on all sorts of places. Just search it. Hell, just put my first name in the word LSD into Google just for kicks and shits and giggles. <laughs> uh, you can find me there as well. Um, it's pretty easy to find me. Yeah. Um, I'm uh, in the process right now of, uh, I've been, I've been trying to avoid writing a book for a long time cause I didn't feel like I was ready, but I'm now ready and I'm about ready to launch a campaign for, uh, you know, a GoFundMe or a, 
uh, something of that sort for uh, publishing a book about the life and times of this and theogenic chemist. Excellent, man. And, yeah, uh, let me know and I will promote that for you. I mean, that sounds exciting. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very, very much. I've actually just uh, moved into a new spot where I'm very calm and I've got, you know, squirrels on my deck and raccoons that visit me at night and deer in the in the garden down below and lots of birds in the trees right next to my balcony. And I'm in a really, really beautiful spot. And uh, I think I'm going to take this time right now to sit and write and uh, put a lot of this down on paper so that I can make a, a larger difference than I'm already making. I've realized recently that I'm reaching more people with my words now than I ever reached with my molecules. And uh, Nick Sand was a very interesting individual who died recently, as you said. Uh, he produced you know, a quarter of a billion doses. He reached a lot of people. Yeah, It'd be nice if I could reach a quarter of a billion people with my words. Um, well, you have some pretty, you have some pretty triumphant, amazing, excellent, poetic words. So I think that's possible, man, for sure. And you know, I'm going to be here to support you. And I hope people listening were inspired by this and will support you as well. So once again, just thank you so much, Casey, for being being on the right. show, guys. Thanks for tuning in for this episode of Mike and Delic. See you next week. Peace. <laughs>